There is actually one of three ways that you become an airline pilot. The first is a route through the military, which you probably know, predominantly through the Air Force, also some pilots come through the Navy. Basically, you fly for Her Majesty's forces over a select number of years, sometimes it's eight years, 12 years, 16 years, depending on their um, length of service. And what happens through their military career, they're obviously only flying military jets, but obviously this gives them the experience enough to go forth and have a career in commercial aviation. So once they leave the Air Force, they have to sit all the United Kingdom exams in order to convert their military licenses uh, into commercial licenses. That's really the first way that is an avenue into commercial flying. The second way is, again, you may have heard, is uh, people can actually pay for their commercial license themselves. And this is called the self-improvement route. Now, it doesn't mean to say that, and it costs £120,000 to do it, it doesn't mean to say that you'll go along to any flying academy and say, here's my hard-earned £120,000. What you'll have to do is sit some aptitude tests and a medical, and there's certain degrees of medical, and I can go into that later on when we talk about the ongoing assessment that we have. But so basically, you can go up to a flying academy and sit some, some aptitude tests and and a medical. And they will literally be kind enough to say whether you should part with your £120,000. Now, you can start the course, but of course, just like in the military, during your training, which consists of about 18 months, and you will have to sit and pass certain progress checks. So it's not a given. Even though you've you've parted with your money, it still doesn't mean that guarantees you pilot's license at the end of it. So it's a lot of hard work and graft. And then they come out basically with what's called a frozen airline transport pilot's license. And it means now that they have to start looking for jobs. And of course, there's a, a big world of aviation there. But of course, to get into a big airline that flies jets, the problem they find is how to bridge the gap between their basic flying license and going on to a big jet. That often takes uh, quite some years of you know starting with smaller airplanes, smaller airlines, and building up to to flying bigger jets. And the third avenue is the one that I was very lucky enough to uh, start when I was the age of 21, 33 years ago. I was very lucky enough to be sponsored by an airline, by Monarch Airlines. There are a certain number of airlines in the world that have a sponsorship, a cadetship. And in order for an airline to invest that £120,000 in you initially, uh, you have to go along and sit all those aptitude tests that I talked about. But now, of course, you're competing with a, with a place uh, with many other people, thousands of people. You go along to a series of aptitude tests, again, to sit the first-class medical, uh, which is probably about half a day, the initial uh, first-class medical. And then, of course, lots of interviews and board interviews. And then, of course, you go on to uh, the course, the Flying Academy, just like uh, I spoke before. And again, once again, it's no different. You have to pass all these uh, specific progress checks along the way. And at any time, of course, if you don't achieve those desired results, then the airline will uh, obviously remove you from their course. And, and it does happen, and it did happen when, when I was, was going through to, to some... And to give you some idea, in, in 18 months of what the Flying Academy is like, it's, it's been compared to doing a university degree over three years um, within just inside 18 months. And uh, from what I recollect, we had a, 
two weeks holiday in 18 months. So it's pretty intensive. And the course is just, it's divided into two. There's technical subjects, which you can imagine is anything from engines, instruments, anything that, you know, is inside an aeroplane, hydraulics, electrics, air conditioning, pressurization. And then the other side is the navigational topics, which is how not only do you learn to fly an aeroplane and understand how it works, but you then have to obviously navigate the way from A to B. And navigation subjects are a world full of meteorology. So we get to um, be able to forecast the weather, just like the people on TV, <laughs> not for long, but, and all things like that. And we have to understand world climatology and we have to be able to navigate with all sorts of different um, instruments. When you come out of these academies, uh, not only do you get what's called an airline transport license, you get a license called an instrument rating. And this basically means, because one of the questions I often get asked, uh, and so does every other pilot, was, well, you don't really do anything, do you? Because you just sit there and, and watch it happen from A to B. But we actually, if you imagine, the only time we need to sit out of the window is actually on takeoff, for obvious reasons, because we need to see where we're going down the runway. Because to this date, for commercial airliners, there is no such thing as an automatic takeoff. So we have to see exactly what's going on on the runway. But as soon as our wheels leave the runway, we can fly from A to B, whether it be from here to Australia or from here just down the road, we can fly solely by the uh, use of instruments. And of course, we can land automatically, which we do in fog, but that's for a day on a webinar. So, and that's what's called an instrument rating. And that's how we practice in the aviation academy that as soon as we get airborne the instructors close all our windscreens they put shields up and then we have to take them from a to b purely by the use of instruments so i hope that answers everyone's question on the three routes possible to gain entry into a commercial airline of course gaining then into the commercial airline, of course is whether you come from the military self-improver or you're a sponsor cadet you then obviously have to prove yourself to get into an airline. The sponsored people obviously are already going to be accepted by that airline because they've already invested in but the military guys and the self-improvers then have to come along to a series of interviews and aptitude tests with an airline to see if they are willing to obviously take them on for a career. And to get yourself onto an airliner, the conversion probably all in all, for you to be released on the line with passengers on is probably not short, far short of six months. So there's about a month of ground school and lots of learning of that particular aeroplane. And then just a whole series of simulator, simulator after simulator after simulator. And then you go onto the line with some uh, training captains, instructors. And once you reach the required standard, uh, you get signed off and then you are free to start your career and Paul, so far, how has that? Yeah, this is, uh, this is good stuff. And we've actually got some questions already, but I think so you've oh. covered kind of how people get into to become somebody like you. Well, not like you, but <laughs> trained as well as you. Um, yeah. But I'm, I mean, one of the questions that I've noticed was people often worry about the, the personality side. <laughs> you know, what characteristics do you need to have? What are you, are you tested in any way, personality-wise, before you can get nearer an airline itself? A absolutely, yes. And more so in, in the modern world, as, as we realise, you know, lots of um, human factors and psychology plays, plays an awful, you know, an awfully important part, uh, you know, for anyone to take on any job, just not just aviation, but of course, 
it is vitally important in the airline for to to get the right to, you know balance of not only uh, mental agility but obviously you know well-being as well that's all part of the selection procedure that's great so what about when when you're up there what what sort of things are in place you know on a day-to-day basis so it sounds like there's a lot of procedures and training and checking just to get to the place of being a first officer which is you know two stripes less than you so that's somebody who's in the right hand seat and very carefully vetted roll on a few months they've been approved they've passed all of that what sort of things are in place to keep to keep us us all safe but also to, to keep an eye on you lot <laughs> no absolutely and quite rightly too unfortunately for pilots uh, just as you got through all of your aviation academy and you think brilliant i've got this golden ticket and then it's just another golden ticket when an airline accepts you obviously for a, you know, a career that's when the hard work actually begins because i believe it's very unique our industry or one of the unique industries in that uh, we never have a job for more than six months in answer to your question yes you're right so you get released onto the line so just to explain to them you, you start as uh, as a first officer a co-pilot uh, if you like with, with two stripes on your shoulder and uh, you stay in that rank for most airlines it's it's about four years and then you become a senior first officer with three bars and then you're probably uh, on a on a big aeroplane you'll have to do at least 10 years as a co-pilot before you get uh, selected to go up for command yes as i say the, the hard work begins so every six months every single pilot doesn't matter what rank you are you have to go to the simulator back to the simulator for two days of testing and during those two days examiners and instructors will take you through two days of literally everything comprising of basically what you did uh, during your initial training and for two days you um, you will practice in the simulator losing engines at critical stages of flight and um, you'll have fires you'll have hydraulic failures electric failures pressurization failures also the to bomb threats to all sorts of stuff that will obviously put you in the spotlight for two days and you must pass uh, that two-day assessment and you must obviously satisfy the standards now these standards of course are set originally by civil aviation authority and each airline adapts those procedures according to what type of flying whether it's short haul or long haul depending on the airline yeah, so those two days are pretty intense uh, for everyone. It happens every six months. There's nothing you can do about it. You, you do get used to it when you, you get to my age, but for the first uh, few years, it's, um, it's quite um, an eye-opener for, uh, for people starting out. But obviously, uh, it's a necessity. So on top of those, those two days, every six months, every year on the actual aeroplane with a training captain, an instructor, an examiner, you will go through what's called a line check. So yourself and also a crew, a co-pilot and a captain, will go through an assessment with passengers. So say we're going from London to New York and back again. Over those three days, uh, an instructor, an examiner will sit behind them and watch the conduct of how they're operating. So again, so from A to B and back again to London, over three days, you will be assessed and you must pass, again, the standard procedures uh, that are set in place. So that's the second test. Uh, every year we also get a technical exam that we have to, to pass. It's called a refresher exam. And again, we get tested on our, on our knowledge and procedures, making keeping up with all our uh, studies and our, our book work. And of course, procedures 
all day and every day get to introduce new procedures to enhance safety. And that's something that we also have to keep on top of. So that's the third thing. And fourthly, every year we get a medical. So this class one medical that I talk about, it's a couple of hours of your life every, every year and you get attached to all sorts of equipment. So from ECGs for your heart and audio, uh, audiograms for your hearing, you get eye tests, lung function tests, liver function tests, blood tests. It goes on and on and all those normal things. And once again, you must pass what is required for a class one medical, which means a class one means the highest grade of medical for a commercial airline pilot to be paid for hire and reward. Going back to all those other three assessments, what happens if you don't pass? So of course you're immediately grounded. Say for example, you do two days in the simulation, you're immediately grounded. And then obviously uh, it's looked into as to why you failed, etc. Then you will be given obviously a chance of retraining. So then you will be retrained by certain instructors in the airline. And depending on obviously what the failures were, it depends how long that retraining will last. And then once you've now been brought up to a competent standard, once again, you will then resit that two-day test that I talked about. It's called a line proficiency check, an operator's proficiency check. As I say, you must pass that uh, two-day thing. All been good? That's great. You're on your way again, and you can go back to the line. And of course, unfortunately, and it's very, very rare, but it does happen if, sadly, that individual, he or she was not to to pass the second test then of course it's really up to the airline where where that goes whether retraining is possible if the airline thinks that they will get over the mark and be able to return to the line successfully and safely uh, but if not then you will be released from the airline and again it doesn't happen very much but it does happen that's a lot isn't it it's a lot to go through <laughs> yeah. i can imagine and, it's very reassuring for people to hear all the things that are in place that perhaps they didn't know about makes me wonder but, why anyone would do it. Well, exactly. And it, it does, you know, like I say, when you're, when you're starting, it's, it's actually quite stressful in many ways, but you, like I say, when you get old and gray, like, you, you do get used to it. It's something you have to, it, the, the medical uh, side of things it, in my career, I mean, I've seen some wonderfully fit human beings um, sadly lose their flying license through no fault of their own. I suppose you could say it's advantageous that every year we know that we're actually a healthy human being because like every, if you're like me, you know, we don't like going to our GPs or doctors because you're always nervous to find out, you know, if there's anything lurking, but, but we can't avoid that. And so you could say that it's a good thing that um, sometimes um, people find out medical things, what, what stops them. And, and it can range from all sorts of things, if, you, know, you know, to slight blips and murmurs in your heart to whatever it may be that is affecting your hearing or eyesight, then of course, sadly, you lose your, your flying license. So it is a lot to, yeah, every six months, every year, that um, that's how long your, your, literally your job is lasting for. So yeah, unfortunately, medically, that's something you can't avoid, but it's a very necessary part of our testing. Uh, all the other stuff, of course, we have to, as pilots, individuals, to, just to be you know, your own self-pride, you must keep on top of, of every single thing that that you've been taught otherwise you will fall by the wayside in all this testing that that happens so what about if this is a question that uh, someone prompted me before this session they're saying well what about if you you know you're feeling a bit rough or maybe you've got a newborn baby and you've <laughs> been up all night 
and you come in you're tired what's the kind of duty of care that's in place yes no thanks and it and it and it is a it's a very important uh, clause in everything and so um, all the rules as i stated uh, uh, from the civil aviation authority in the united kingdom they set out the law the bible if you like it's called the ano the air navigation order and in that states not only do we get checked and we're allowed to fly passengers but we also have to take ownership and responsibility for our own licenses in that exactly a good example of what you just said if you're feeling a bit rough and boy you know i've, I've met lots of guys who who are up all night with um, newborns etc etc or just daily stresses of life you know whether it be you know whatever's going on at home people getting divorced and just natural stresses that are horrible to go through you must take ownership of that and absolutely you you call in you call in sick and you say look I am unable to fly today for the following reasons, including common colds. I mean, you know, I know it sounds really dark, but for two reasons. One, if you fly, if, if any, anyone has flown as a passenger with a cold, you will know in the descent what pressurization can do to you if, if any of your sinuses are blocked and it is the most excruciating pain. So pilots, when we get common colds or anything like that, we, we will not fly because what we're doing is we're putting our medicals at risk then. But also, as a common courtesy, you know, why would you want to sit in a flight deck if you're in a long-haul airline like I am for 12 hours coughing, spluttering over someone? So, yes, you have to take ownership of this. And if you are not fit to fly, is the term, that is the actual term, fit to fly, you must call the airline and say that uh, I'm uh, not fit to fly today. If I worked for a low-cost airline, whatever that means, if I was phoned in and said, oh, I'm not fit to fly, would I be under pressure from the, the airline management? The, or, or is it the same rule for everybody? It is, yes. We're, we're lucky uh, in, in the United Kingdom and the Civil Aviation Authority. It doesn't, and we, we also hear a lot of questions asked about, you know, depending on what airline you're with, you know, does low cost mean all the standards are, are, are low cost? And actually far from it. And their standards are, are just the same, extremely high. It makes no difference and, and they have a different lifestyle to to a long-haul pilot uh, a long-haul pilot faces uh, time zones and things so our fatigue is, is based over somewhat of a different category whereas a short-haul pilot is doing multiple sectors a day for maybe five days in a row uh, maybe four sectors a day etc and so their fatigue is actually just repetitive flying so they must obviously keep on top of that in answer to your question for their management, no, because every airline management comes under this, this ANO, the Air Navigation Order, set by the Civil Aviation Authority. And not only do pilots get assessed, as I said, every six months, so do, so do each individual airline in the United Kingdom and around the world. And their own authorities um, do audits on, on each airline. Their inspectors from the Civil Aviation in the United Kingdom come into each and every airline, probably two times a year maybe three times a year and not only just obviously checking that everything is is you know being obeyed but it's not just flight crew naturally it's from operations on the ground to of course very importantly engineering and, and maintenance what happens if the computers and the instruments fail you know when i told you um every six months we we get the two days in the simulator that's also one of the the things that we uh, have to face is a complete failure of the flight management computers and instruments and it's one of those things that we are trained to to cope with there is so much redundancy in modern airplanes now 
so if one system fails, another one takes over. If that one fails, another one takes over. Yes, one of those things is a failure of all instruments and the computers. We have procedures set in place that how, how we manage that. To cut a long story short, that was going back to pure basics of flying. And that's why uh, we also have to maintain those skills as well. Brilliant. Okay, so we've got some good, that's good. So we've got some good questions here. So here's one. How do airlines support pilots to be honest about mental health difficulties? I'm sure everyone's aware. Well, again, not just in our industry, because I think it's, it's now, it's a huge topic in this country and, and everywhere around the world. And I think going back through history, we're all aware that um, I'm talking now from the United Kingdom of the good old British spirit, you know, keep a stiff upper lip and you got through it. And all those poor people, I mean, I'm, I'm now plucking a subject, you know, there's people that went to war, you know, um, keeping us all safe, you know, this, you know, the post-traumatic stress syndrome, all, all things like that. There was never anything in place for that. You know, why should any other industry be, be any different? And, uh, and especially in commercial flying with all the everyday pressures and stresses and strains of life, probably more so in this, this new modern technology of the world that coming out of your front door in the morning, that's where the excitement begins. And there is a lot in place now. We, we have a department in our occupational health and the first signs of stuff that you feel that you're not on top of coping, if you like, with everyday life, then there's very much um, support programs in place. Imagine the scenario, you get on board the aircraft and you've done your pre-flight checks in your, in your meeting room and all the rest of it. And then you start to notice that your pilot, that he or she seems a bit, I don't know, just not, you know, just not quite right in some way. What do you do? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously you're going to have a, um, a conversation with them. Potentially could be an awkward conversation. But of course, you're going to ask them every question and give them every opportunity to, to tell you, is there something that you, know, you want to chat about? It could be work related. It could be personal reasons. And in answer to your question, that, that has happened yeah, and does happen. And of course, uh, between the two of you or three of you, however many crew of that day, between you, you will give them the full support. But in answer to your question, you, you won't just carry them as a passenger just to, to say, well, you just sit there and be quiet. It's, uh, <laughs> and don't touch anything. You will absolutely just say, look, hey, it's in, in the best interest of everyone. And, primarily of course safety so they, they know that and, and any it's embarrassing and of course we're all priding ourselves and of course you don't want to admit that failure absolutely that's a natural natural thing even just going to you know, like i said to you sometimes when you just get the common cold you think oh god i'm just going to ring into you know because i've got a runny nose i've got to go sick but you're protecting your medical at that point as well but very much so you, you will support one another in it as a community i think there's a there's a theme running here Quite rightly, these are some of the questions. I mean, over the years, I've heard this this question come up a lot. What's in place to prevent pilots flying under the influence of drugs or alcohol? Yeah, very good. And again, even in my my career, thirty years, it, it's changed enormously. Again, do you remember the the ANO, the Air Navigation, all the states about the limits of alcohol and that? And pretty much, I mean, I, I don't know milli, is it milligrams per whatever in the, um, it's it's pretty much negligible now. Um, and it's changed very much over the years. Now, since uh, I'm going back probably in the early 2000s, we, for the first time ever, had spot checks for alcohol and drugs. 
And that was never the case before. It would be picked up in your medicals, obviously, but we never had spot checks for air crew. And this is not just the United Kingdom, this is now around the world. Yeah, that's very much in place. Of course, the, um, it has changed. And it, it was just alcohol when I first started. And of course, now, of course, the, the drug cultures around the world, that, that, that also needs to be carefully monitored. So yeah, at any time, you boarding an aeroplane, whether it be in the United Kingdom or down route, and my airline version, Atlantic, no different. We've had lots of cases of crew being spot checked. Yeah, you're taken off to the appropriate facilities and uh, tested for those. And for the public, you'll be pleased to hear that that air crew that then gets tested doesn't operate the aeroplane. Not because they failed, it's just because you can imagine that that's actually quite a stressful procedure to actually go, airlines have in place a procedure that if crews were to be spotted, they don't actually operate that aeroplane, another crew will. I think that's very reassuring, but there's some other questions, and this is a good one because in here is, it, is there specific training that helps pilots or crew to be able to challenge or support each other? Because that's not an easy thing to do. Yes. So, it, is this in a similar vein to um, what you were talking about before? Someone turning up to work? Is yeah, that- yeah. Because it's like you know, if we if you put it into the scenario of our everyday world work with a colleague and I have to challenge them about their behavior that's pretty tough and so what you know I would want some sort of training or support around that and, and for you you know there's just the two of you it's not like you can just go sick halfway across the no. Atlantic or whatever so what's in place training wise to, to help you to do that sort of challenge and support you and them yep no very much so so part of all our training and again this this is something that's hugely involved evolved over uh, my career um, it, it's now called Human Factors, uh, HF. It started out as CRM, Cockpit Resource Management. And it's something that's, um, again, part of our yearly uh, studies that we get a day as a refresher in Human Factors in that it teaches you to recognize that somebody may or may not be performing to how they should do in the aeroplane. It gives you the tools in order to challenge that. And there's certain ways that you obviously, you know, challenge and response, basically. And you're looking for certain answers that will give you indicators that that behavioural marker may not be correct. If there was one message that you would like to say to people, you know, when they're thinking about taking a commercial flight and if they are worried about who's that up the front, I can just hear a voice and I don't get to meet them and why should I feel safe with them? What, what, sort, what would you say? I could probably say that it is a unique industry compared to any others in that the, first of all, to actually get into sitting in a seat to operate a commercial airliner is one thing. Secondly, to actually then maintain your seat is something, it's just, it's continuous, it's, it's huge. You know, like I say, every six months, how many people would actually venture into a career, you know, signing a contract, knowing that it was only for six months? You know. You, probably you weigh that up uh, that it wouldn't be a very sensible thing to do, but that's, that's what it is. So the investment, you know, that you've put into it, it you're not going to let it go lightly. Paul, you know me, that one of the things I always say on the fear of flying courses that, that, that we do is the person flying the aeroplane is no different to you. They want to go home at the end of the day. When I'm in charge of an aeroplane, I always say, as you know, to the audience, who's the most important person on the airplane? Of course, they all put their hand and say, me, and I go, no, no, it, it's me, because you're coming with me. 
and I want to go home at the end of the day. And to me, Paul, you know me, but um, I love life. And my favourite destination in the world is, is home. So I'm not going to jeopardise that for anything. So every other pilot is, is no different. Steve, <laughs> that, that's absolutely brilliant. 